This is Spotlight on France. I'm Sarah Elzis. I'm Alison Hurd. Coming up, a study this week revealed the French are the world's most sceptical nation over vaccines. We try to understand why. And we report on the new compulsory national service for young people that's currently being tested out and causing controversy. But first, a quick look at some stories in the news that caught our eye this week. Prime Minister Edouard Philippe unveiled a reform of unemployment benefits on Tuesday, extending the amount of time you have to work in order to claim the benefits and capping the amount that higher paid workers receive after six months on the dole. Labor Minister Muriel Penico said the reform was tough but important. Unions say the changes are unfair. The CFDT union, it's the closest to the ruling party, slammed a provision that would add a tax to short-term contracts. Those are intended to encourage companies to hire permanent workers instead of temporary ones. In theory, it's a good measure, but as it's only applied to seven sectors, union leader Laurent Berger says it doesn't solve the problem. We're stunned by this reform, he says. It's profoundly unfair. It doesn't take into account the true precarity of French employment today. The government hopes that the reform will reduce unemployment, getting 150 to 250,000 people off the dole in the next three years. And, of course, it will save money, some 3.5 billion euros over that same time period. For once, political parties here in France seem to be on the same page. Opposition lawmakers from across the political spectrum have joined forces to try and block the government from privatising the Paris airport company known as ADP. They've launched an appeal to gather the signatures of 4.7 million people, that's 10% of the electorate, and that would allow them to put the privatisation to a referendum. They've got nine months to get those signatures. Now, the opponents say France would be surrendering control over its main port of entry, that's Charles de Gaulle Airport. ADP also owns Orly Airport and it has stakes in a host of other hubs around the world. The government argues that selling part of the state's majority share in ADP for some 9 billion euros would cut the budget deficit for a start and it would help pay for a long promised fund for technological innovation. The opposition don't believe in that. A Paris court was supposed to rule this week on whether or not to release 130,000 euros raised online for Christophe Détanger. He's the former boxer who was filmed punching two police officers during a yellow vest protest in January. He became something of a symbol for the movement. Right after he was arrested, a crowdfunding campaign was opened to raise money for his legal fees. The organizers shut it down after just two days as thousands of donations poured in. And that upset authorities. The fund's been called a glorification of violence against the police. Police have even investigated some of those donors. The case is about what and whom the money is actually for. The court this week decided to send the case back to a lower court to re-examine the original crowdfunding contract. The case will be heard in December. In the meantime, the money stays blocked. The French music world is mourning the loss of one of its great DJs and producers of electronic music. Philippe Serbonnichi, known as Zda, died on Wednesday after falling from a high-story building. He was just 50, Sarah. He made up half of the electro duo Cassius and he pioneered the so-called French touch house music. Musicians from all over the world would queue up 
to record at his motorbase recording studio in Montmartre, not least because it was totally committed to analogue. His death came as Cassius was just about to release a new album and just before the annual Fête de la Musique, which is held today, the 21st of June. Zadar was due to play and lots of musicians, both amateur and pro, will be paying tribute to him. It's been a challenging week for the former right-wing president Nicolas Sarkozy. He took a step closer to the discomfort of the courtroom. Michael Fitzpatrick keeps an eye on the French press and politics for us. Michael, tell us about this last chapter in the Sarkozy saga and why it matters. I'm not sure it's going to be the last chapter. It's Mm. the latest in uh, a saga which is now looking a bit longer than war and peace. He is going finally to have to appear in court Uh, He's charged basically with corruption and uh, this is in connection with what is known here in France as the bismuth affair. Sarkozy at the time, they were talking about 2014, was convinced that the judicial authorities were actually listening to his phone conversations and so he bought a mobile phone and adopted the alias of Paul Bismuth so that he could talk to his, notably his lawyer Thierry Herzog privately. The actual facts against him don't appear to be terribly uh, grave. He's accused of having uh, tried to influence a judge with an offer of a job to find out a result of a case in another case in which uh, Sarkozy was accused and uh, in fact he got off on that particular case the judge involved didn't get the job that was promised but the simple fact of making such a proposition is a crime in French law and it's a very serious one. Right so he's he's up on charges of corruption and influence peddling and this is noteworthy because he's the first former president to actually face trial? That's absolutely true just as he was the first former president to be detained and questioned by police. Michael where does this leave the political right? Well, recently there's been a call from uh, Christian Estrosi, who is the right-wing mayor of the southern French city of Nice, and he wasn't exactly calling for Sarkozy to come back and um, be president of the party again. That that page has been long turned, but he did suggest that uh, Sarkozy has the moral authority to reunite the diverse and divided forces of the right. That's an unfortunate statement, isn't it? The moral authority is now going to find itself in the dock, and that's not great for Sarkozy personally, nor for the right-wing party to which he uh, continues to adhere. Because they did pretty poorly in the recent European elections, I think only about 8% of the vote. And they've been hit by a series of defections. Um, There's now discussion about leaving the whole question of who actually presides over that party until after the next round of of local elections here in France. So it's uh, total chaos. And finally, what does it tell us about the, the state of the judiciary here in France, which has sometimes been accused perhaps of being a bit party in favour of one uh, political uh, party or another. Not least by Nicolas Sarkozy himself Mm. because uh, in his book All for France he did actually say in connection with uh, an earlier case involving him that he felt that the judges had been motivated by a desire to humiliate him. The fact that this case uh, continues now that his political significance has diminished considerably is perhaps to be seen as a positive point for the French judicial system. The 
French, it would seem, are sceptical about vaccines. An international study published on Wednesday this week showed that Europeans have the least trust in vaccines in the world, and French people are the most sceptical of them all. A third of French people do not agree that vaccination is safe, whereas globally, nearly 80% of people say they are. That's a huge discrepancy. Vaccinations have been an issue here for a while. There's been an uptake in measles as people are vaccinating their kids against it less, to the point that last year the government made 11 vaccinations mandatory. Before then, only three were mandatory. The eight others, including measles, were optional. The skepticism is growing, but it's not new. I looked into this issue a while ago when the Constitutional Council was debating this issue of mandatory vaccination, and I met some parents of children who even years ago were questioning vaccines, like this woman, Sophie. She's a yoga teacher in Paris who has a 22-year-old daughter, and she showed me the vaccination records from when she was a baby. So this is, this is the vaccination booklet? Yeah, yeah. So that was May 99, you see, and that was her first one. And she was born in February uh, 98, so she was over a year. So what do we have here? May 99, we have what? May 99, we have what they call diphtheria, tetanus and polio. And in fact, to be honest with you, diphtheria was not in it. We decided against diphtheria. It's written here because it was compulsory. And we just thought there's hardly any diphtheria around here. And my daughter was aware that she hasn't had diphtheria vaccination. So that was a decision the doctor said, yeah. I'm going to write this in. But we did not give it to your, do- your daughter. Yes. Okay. So no diphtheria. She also worried about the BCG vaccine against tuberculosis, how it was manufactured. And she also questioned its efficacy. I want to see my daughter's petition again. And uh, I said, you know, I don't think I want my daughter to be vaccinated. And she said, well, actually, I'm really happy you're telling me that because just only last week, I saw a little girl in Hôpital Trousseau. She'd been vaccinated and she was dying of meningitis TB form. The vaccination didn't protect her. And she said, okay, I'll go along with you. So the doctor wrote a letter saying that her daughter couldn't get the vaccine because of an allergy, and the daycare accepted that. Another woman I talked to, Catherine, got a similar dispensation from her homeopathic doctor for her son. Today he's 23, but the daycare for her younger daughter refused to accept the certificate. So I asked my daughter what I can do, and he said, okay, we have to do a fake. So we bought the vaccination to have the sticker, and the doctor put a stamp with the, the sticker. Surely that's illegal. Very much so. But anecdotally, this appears to be standard practice for doctors who are anti-vaccine in France. They buy the vaccine and put the sticker in a fake vaccination record. It must be said, though, that the skepticism around the effectiveness of that BCG vaccine was perhaps somewhat warranted. In 2007, a few months after Catherine got that fake certificate, the health ministry said the vaccine was no longer mandatory. Now, Catherine isn't a die-hard vaccination skeptic, but she was convinced by her doctor not not to vaccinate her children. She said uh, vaccination are not without consequences. Maybe if the diphtheria is so dangerous for the kid, it's obvious for her to do the vaccination. But the other one, she said, no, there are consequences. I was very in confidence with her. I saw how she took care of my child and I was very in confidence. So I say, okay. So both of these women didn't vaccinate their children. Did the kids end up getting sick? Actually, yeah, Catherine's son did get the measles at age 18. Sophie's daughter got whooping cough at age 12. The vaccine's given before you're 18 months old. My daughter caught whooping cough, and then I felt terribly guilty. 
Cassandra thought, well, maybe it's my fault. Oh, God, maybe I should have had her vaccinated. It's very unpleasant. It lasts for uh, six weeks. So if you, if you had to do it again, would you have done it? I don't know. I'd have to further investigate again. <laughs> I, I, just, I never take things for granted. I like to and build up my own opinion. I mean, I'm not a doctor, I'm a nurse, I have no sense of really proper health, I'm, I'm no, no specialist, but still, I don't want to just believe whatever people tell me. Questioning what people tell you, maybe that's not such a bad thing nowadays with all this fake news and everything, but with vaccines it can be a lot more dangerous, right? These kids got sick, but they survived, but if they'd been younger, who knows what might have happened? And then there's the risk of infecting others. That's one of the reasons, personally, I'm comfortable uh, having my own kids vaccinated. Yeah, same thing here. So you do have to ask, though, where that skepticism comes from. Part of it is some serious health scandals here in France have lowered trust in the medical establishment and in drug companies. Like the contaminated blood scandal in 1991, because in the 1980s, thousands of people were given blood that was infected with HIV and the health minister at the time was accused of having delayed the use of an American blood screening test until a rival French test was ready to go on the market. And then there was also that flu vaccine in 2009, which really shook people's trust in vaccines in particular. France had ordered nearly 100 million doses of the H1N1 vaccine. It cost about a billion euros. By the time they were all delivered, it turned out that the pandemic was less serious than it was thought. People were scandalized by the amount of money and waste. And by the next year, the next flu season, less than 10 percent of the population had gone to get vaccinated. There's also a trend here for the 100 percent natural, which is a movement that's very popular on Internet. But it's important to remember that to protect people fully through vaccination, you need uh, coverage of between 90 and 95 percent. And those most at risk are the vulnerable ones, that's to say babies and the elderly. And now to go back in time. <laughs> To June 17, 1939, 80 years ago, the day of the last public execution in France, Eugène Weidmann, a German criminal who had murdered six people in France, was beheaded by guillotine outside of the Saint-Pierre prison in the center of Versailles. Usually executions were done before dawn, but this one started late and it gave time for a massive crowd to gather. Some came for the show, but others came to denounce the spectacle. And because it happened so late in the day, there was enough light for photos. And even a film was shot from a nearby apartment. You can see Weidman in it in a white shirt, hands tied behind his back, and the crowd is gathered around as the blade drops down. Among the many spectators was the British actor Christopher Lee, who later, by the way, played Dracula on screen. He was 17 at the time. He'd been brought there by a journalist friend of the family without really knowing what to expect. In his autobiography, he describes this wave of shouting and the piercing screams when Weidman was brought out of the prison. He and other witnesses also described spectators surging towards Towards the corpse to try and dip their handkerchiefs in the blood to keep as a souvenir. A pretty grim souvenir there. The mass spectacle of the execution, the photos which were seen around the world, all that pushed the French president at the time, Albert Lebrun, to immediately ban all future public executions. But they did continue, though, inside prisons, still by guillotine. There was actually an execution a week later on the 24th of June inside that same Versailles prison. The last execution in France was 1977. The death penalty was officially abolished in 1981. 
France is testing out a new mandatory national service. 15 and 16 year olds from all walks of life will spend two weeks in training camps, followed by an optional community service. France had a mandatory military service for boys until 2001. And some say that a certain social cohesion was lost because the military service put people of different backgrounds together and forced them to interact. During his presidential campaign, Emmanuel Macron promised to revive this cohesion and give boys and girls a direct experience of military life through mandatory service. Last week, the trial phase was launched. Some 2,000 young volunteers from all over the country started a two-week national civil service in 13 different parts of the country. Stéphane Genest met one of the young volunteers as he was getting ready to leave. 15-year-old David is sitting on a leather couch at his home in Normandy. He's getting ready to play a video game, probably the last one he'll play for two weeks. He's about to leave to do his national service in the Creuse in central France, several hours away from home. And he's looking forward to it. It's the moment we all get together, get to know each other, do activities together. We'll bond. I'm not afraid, I'm just curious. His bags are packed, including his uniform. There's some blue trousers and a blue coat to go with them, a white polo shirt with the National Service logo on the chest, and a cap with the logo too. David was chosen as an ambassador for this first phase of the national service. The government hopes that within a few years the pilot will be expanded to include all young people in France. David signed up right away after a presentation at school. I'm proud to be part of it. We were the first to see the uniforms, the first ones to be chosen. That's something to be proud of. I'm looking forward to doing sports, and we'll be all together. We will do activities. There will be treks in the wood, lots of activities, and classes, self-defense, first aid. It's about solidarity and helping others. That's what I do best. During these two weeks, David and the others will live in separate boys' and girls' dorms. Everyone will get up early, put on their uniforms, and before they start the day's activities, they'll sing the French national anthem, La Marseillaise. It's regimented, military-like, but it's not military service. It's not military service, it's a way of getting young people involved in society. 23-year-old Benjamin Laceva is a middle school history teacher who signed up to be a monitor for the kids during this pilot phase. Each monitor is in charge of 10 students, bringing them to activities and leading discussion groups. La Seva likes the fact that the national service will introduce these young people to real life. I taught a course the other day with my students on what it means to be a citizen. And as we talked, they said, I want to be more involved in society, but I'm in middle school, I can't do anything. And I said, no, you can do plenty of things. When you're 16, you can join associations and commit to a cause. And the goal of this national service is to give them the tools to become citizens. If we don't show them how to do it, we can't be surprised when they don't do it. La Seva is also an army reservist, but not all the monitors are military. He says they are just as diverse as the students. Like him, many are teachers. They are also members of the military as well as youth leaders. 
Armand Agazia, who is 21, has worked with young people before. He volunteered as a monitor out of curiosity. I was curious how it could be organized. They are five years younger than I am, but I put myself in their place. When I was 15, what was I doing? I didn't know who the political parties were. I didn't know about the impact of voting, about environmental issues. It's important to address these questions and we'll be there to allow everyone to speak about the different subjects. The goal of these activities is to pass on French civic values. There will be debates, film screenings, which can be debated, subjects that are in the news, notably homosexuality in football. I know we'll talk about that. A variety of activities and discussions, and notably no phones allowed during the day. Some of the students themselves have said this is a good thing. David's mom, Julie, welcomes it and says it will encourage more interaction between the teenagers. The monitors will hold on to the phones, so the kids will be required to interact. Where are you from? What are you doing? And then with the different activities, they'll be more involved. I think they'll get into it. They will have no choice. The whole group will grow close and it will go well. That group feeling is what drew David to volunteer. He is also looking forward to getting out of the house. Being away from our parents will be good for us, to help us grow and be more mature. And the training can be useful for the future, for our CVs, our career path. It can help us in our lives. So David is quite positive. Of course, he is a volunteer. And some have actually joked that this is going to be the biggest pickup scene for teenagers, all this sponsored by the French government. But seriously, the idea in principle does sound interesting. You mix young people from different social classes, giving them a sense of purpose and discipline and structure. But critics say the money spent on this, estimates range from between 1.5 billion to 4 billion euros a year. That money should be spent on improving the current state of the education system, for example, because that's where sort of more social cohesion really does happen. And that's not the only objection. There's been strong reaction to the images of these young people lined up in uniform singing La Marseillaise. One communist counselor tweeted that she found this to be a nationalist nightmare. There's a strong anti-militarist feeling on the French left here and any crossover between military and civilian life is treated with suspicion. And military service was mandatory here until 2001. Boys were required to serve 10 months at some point in French history had been up to two years. By the 90s, you could do your military service in a civilian context, so that direct link with wearing a uniform had been cut. The critics aren't keen to see it return. And some parents, too, are also objecting to this national service, the mandatory nature of it. Some say they'll refuse to allow their kids to go on camps with strangers for a fortnight. But the government says it has to be mandatory if you're going to get a true mix of people from all walks of life. So there are likely to be provisions that'll keep you from taking the baccalaureate, for example, or getting a driver's license if you refuse to do this national service. It'll be interesting, won't it, to see if this new national service really does bring about the intended social it's also interesting if you do speak to people who did their military service back in the day, when you hear them, they, they really say that few really kept in touch with anyone that did their military service. But the idea of everyone having experienced one thing in common beyond school is still attractive to Emmanuel Macron in particular and many other people in France. This pilot phase will help the government figure out the budget and the real interest in making it mandatory in the next few years.
And that's it for Spotlight on France this week, the podcast from the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Erwan Rome. And find Spotlight on France on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us, please. It does help people find us. You can subscribe to the show there or on your favorite podcast platform. See you next Friday. Thank you.